thank you, Alex, and thank you to the rest of our music team who have led us so powerfully today. Thank you for being with us today by Facebook Live, uh, on Vimeo. Thank you for coming and listening or watching any way that you can. Today is a little different, obviously, because we're doing this remotely, but we hope it'll be a wonderful time of worship for all of you uh, today, because God is where his people are, and God wants his word to be heard, and so we're thankful for technology that allows us to do this. So I'm glad you have tuned in wherever you are, and thank you, and I pray that you'll uh, open your Bible and uh, that you'll study along with me today. I hope that you've sung all the songs and listened carefully to the scripture that was shared and to the uh, words that were given from this place already today. But I'm glad you're with us today. God bless you. These are trying times, difficult times for all of us, particularly those who have gotten sick. Uh, it's a time of difficulty economically for people who are now losing their jobs. And I uh, am praying for those people, and we as a church want to do all that we can to assist and minister to people during these difficult days. So God bless you. Thank you for being a part of God's church, wherever you might be. Charles Swindoll loves to tell a story um, about a group of tourists in Europe who were hiking from village to village. And they came across, they were coming into one village, came across an elderly man who was sitting on the roadside. And with a rather patronizing tone, one of them said, Old man, were any great men born in this village? He looked at him and he said, Nope, only babies were born in this village. Well, I like that because it points to the fact that none of us grow great or we're born great. We have to grow that way. We have to grow into maturity or as I say, maturation. It's not something that happens automatically. We are not born solid Christians. We're not born in some way to help, uh, you know, to grow up in, in a way that uh, helps others automatically. It's something we have to grow into. And so, let's do pray that we would become mature men and women for the gospel. Well, we're going to see a passage today, and I want you to go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 11. Now, I'm not going to read all of it immediately at the beginning of the sermon. It's so powerful. In fact, I would ask that if you are listening online uh, in a way that you can turn it off, go ahead and turn it off, read the entirety of the text. And then turn it back on. Because we're going to see God's word in a powerful way in John chapter 11, verses 1 through 45. Next week, as always, we'll pick up with the next section. But this, of course, is the story about Lazarus. About Lazarus' death and Lazarus' resurrection. It's one of the most exciting passages in all the Bible. And as I am teased Yes, it's one of my favorites because it tells in a singular way the power of God, perhaps more than any other place in the scripture. And at the same time, it tells of his compassion as well as his power. And so it's one of the greatest, greatest of all texts. It teaches us that death is real. Death comes to all of us and death came to Lazarus. But it also teaches us what I would call a spiritual paradigm. It teaches us that, that there is a spiritual pilgrimage 
just like he experienced physically, we experience spiritually. There's sickness, there's death, there can be resurrection. And in Lazarus' life, there was sickness, there was death, there was resurrection. So it's a, an example of a spiritual transformation that can occur and should occur and needs to occur in all of our lives so that we do get to a point of spiritual maturity. That's what God wants. One writer, James Houston, in an article in Christianity Today some years ago said, we're in the information age and everybody is absolutely inundated with massive amounts of information. But despite all the information that we receive, it doesn't equate to transformation. We've got more information and access to information than we've ever had, but it's done little to transform us. He's right. We know we have a ways to go. And every pastor I know struggles with getting the people in the congregation as well as his own self from where they are to where God wants them to be. Well, God did a massive work in the life of Lazarus, and he wants to do a huge work in our lives as well. First of all, there was illness. Just look with me at the first few verses of John chapter 11, and we will see the illness that took hold of him. It says, now, a man was sick, Lazarus, from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair. It was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sister sent a message to him, Lord, the one whom you love is sick. Wow, let's stop there just for a moment. Lazarus is sick. We know we get sick. It's a horrible part of our fallen world. In fact, everybody listening to me knows that we're in the midst of a worldwide pandemic with the coronavirus. And you may be tired of hearing it like I'm tired of hearing it, but we're going to hear it more and more in the coming days because the cases in this state, the cases in our nation, don't seem to have peaked yet. I pray some sense of normality will come when the cases begin to peak and decline as they already have in South Korea and China. Praying that will happen in Italy and in other places hard hit as well in Europe. But we are in the midst of recognizing we can get sick. And so we're told to do social distancing and we're told how to disinfect so that we can maintain some kind of protection from sickness. Well, we know we're going to have the cleanest world we've ever had in our entire lives because everything is being cleaned so much. But sickness is a part of our lives. It's a part of life. And we know it was a part of Lazarus' life. In fact, his was a fatal illness. He was going to die. Merrill Tenney, who is a great commentator, New Testament Greek scholar, was, now deceased, he said these sisters must have known that the illness was terrible because they were calling Jesus to come back to an area where there was a price on his head. So it was. They recognized whatever, what, whatever it was. We're not told exactly. Maybe they didn't have a diagnosis then. But whatever it was would lead to his death. It was a serious illness. Now we're grateful for modern medicine. But we need to recognize there is a sickness for which there is no cure 
It's the sickness called sin. And Lazarus, like us, was a sinner. He was an imperfect person. And we all are a part of that experience where we know that we are sinners. In fact, Paul said in Romans 7, 21, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. It's a part of who we are. John Calvin, the great reformer, said the miserable ruin into which the revolt of the first man plunged us compels us to turn our eyes upward. Then he said this, there exists in man something like a world of misery. And ever since we were stripped of our divine nature in the fall, he's talking about, our naked shame discloses an immense series of disgraceful properties. Well, Calvin was right. Sin is real. We need to take it seriously. It cannot be denied. It is a part of who we are. And if we're ever going to be all that God wants us to be, if we're ever going to grow like He wants us to grow, we've got to take it seriously. We must come to grips with its reality. And so I ask you this morning, what do you think Satan wants for your life? He wants for you to stop growing right now where you are, to let sin reign in your life, to control you, and let strongholds run in your experience. That's what he wants. And I pray that you would recognize that reality. Recognize its existence. There was sin in the life of Lazarus. And there is sin in our lives. And it leads to our destruction. Well, not only was there illness, but there was death. Now, the process of how that occurred goes from verse 4 all the way through verse 37. And we're not going to read all of it, but take just a moment with me to look in your Bibles and look beginning in verse 4. When Jesus heard about it, he said, This sickness will not end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified or may be glorified through it. So Jesus stayed there for a while. And then he said in the latter part of verse 7, Well, let's go to Judea again. Rabbi, now, just now the Jews, verse 8 says, tried to stone you. And you're going to go there again? <clears throat> I've said to you before, our Lord Jesus was not a coward. He was not afraid of anyone. And even though he had eluded their grasp before, as we studied in last week's text, we know he was not afraid. And even his own disciples here say, Jesus, you can't go back there. There's a price on your head. They tried to stone you once. You're not going there again, are you? And then Jesus teaches them yet another powerful spiritual lesson. That there are just 12 hours of light in the day. If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of the world. If anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. He said this, and then he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm on my way to wake him up. The disciples said, well, if he's fallen asleep, he'll get well. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. He was speaking about his death. But they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. And then he said in the latter part of verse 14, he has died. Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so you might believe. Let's go to him. There was death. Now, many people get confused because they say, well, why did he say he was asleep if he was 
dead or going to die. Well, again, in first century Judaism, sleep was a commonly used analogy for death. They would often say someone's gone to sleep. In fact, I've had uh, over the years people say about a pet who's gotten very, very ill, we had to put them to sleep. It's a common used analogy in many ways even today. Then it was universally understood. But he realized at this instance, because of what he had just taught them, that they were thinking, well, maybe he just fell into a trance. Maybe he is in a coma. Maybe he's not really dead. Maybe he's just sleeping. There are two primary Greek words for death. Both of them are used throughout the entirety of the New Testament. Uh, the first word is used 18 times. I don't need to give it to you because you don't know Greek anyway. The other is used 16 times. They're universally understood to mean death but Jesus was very pointed here so they would understood but people have taken these phrases out of context and have said well you know when people die they go into a sense of unconsciousness and stay that way until the resurrection they go into a soul sleep some people call it well that's just not true that's not true and we have a number of passages that show it's not true in fact, in Luke 23, when Jesus said to the thief on the cross who was beside him, today you will be in paradise with me, that shows he was not in some kind of a coma or a soul sleep. He was not in a permanent state of, of, of comatose uh, non-activity. He would be with the Lord. And even in that great Philippian passage where Paul said, I'd rather des I, I desire, I'd rather go be with the Lord than to stay with you. He was not going into some place of soul sleep. He was going to be with the Lord. And so we know Lazarus did die. Spiritually, yes, but physically he died. Now we know spiritually sin causes death. And we know that death pervades us and Someone rightly said that we are living in the midst of people who are walking around as dead people. And without Christ, we are dead. So there was death physically. There is death spiritually. What about you and me? Paul said it powerfully in Ephesians 2. Look at this text. I think it might be on the screen. It said, as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world according to the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So we recognize, Scripture says there's spiritual death. And we were like that once too. So Lazarus died physically. We can also die spiritually. Without Christ, we're living in perpetual death. My friends, listen carefully, though. There's hope. And as we said, the entire text and, and, and the songs and everything today points to hope. Because third, there was resurrection. Yes, there was illness. Yes, there was death. But now there's resurrection. Well, look at verse 17 and following. When Jesus arrived, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, you know what happens in a hot climate when there's no embalming. You know what happens to a body. It begins to decay quickly. Now, let me just stop here. 
I remember uh, reading a commentary many years ago when I was in seminary. One of the most famous commentators, he had a, a series of books, and, and most of it was excellent, particularly in the Pauline epistles. But he, just, he, he liked to just explain away every miracle that Jesus ever did. And he did explain them away. Oh, that happened because of this. Like, for example, the feeding of the 5,000. Well, that was a miracle of sharing, you see. Because the people just shared what they had. It wasn't really a miracle. It was a miracle of the heart. So he explained away every miracle that Jesus ever did. And I thought, okay, I'm going to look up John chapter 11 and see what he said about Lazarus. Because Lazarus, we see later, had begun to decay to the point that he smelled badly. His body was decaying. And I thought, what's he going to say about this? So I read it with interest. And he said, well, you have to believe it or you don't. Well, friends, I do believe it. I do believe Lazarus was dead. And the Bible says he was dead four days. Now, verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. It's just on the other side of what's called Mount Zion. It's on the other side of the Kidron Valley and, and uh, the Mount of Olives, excuse me. Just over there was the area called Bethany. Now it's subsumed in all of Jerusalem. But many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. And as soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary stayed seated in the house. Now look at verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She begins to rebuke the Lord Jesus himself. Yet even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And then Jesus says in verse 23, your brother's going to rise again. Well, you know what she's thinking? She's thinking, well, yeah, we all will someday in the great resurrection. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection in the last day. And then some of the most powerful words ever spoken are found in those next two verses. I am the resurrection. I am the life. The one who believes in me, even when he, if he dies, he'll live. And even what, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, ever. Do you believe this? And then some of the greatest words of affirmation, some of the greatest words of belief and testimony are given here. Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he is calling for you. As soon as she heard this, she got up quickly, went to meet him. Verse 30, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling, saw that Mary got up quickly and went. So they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. Verse 32, when Mary, uh, excuse me, when Jesus, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying. He was deeply moved in his spirit and he said, where have you put him? Lord, come and see. And then the shortest verse in all the Bible, verse 35, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. 
But some of them said, couldn't he have opened the blind man's eyes? Couldn't he have opened the blind man also kept this man from dying? Then Jesus moved in himself, angry again in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, he already stinks. It's been four days. Did not tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God. Stop with me there just a moment. We see this resurrection in a powerful way. Jesus is deeply moved. We see that several places, including in verse 38, as well as before, when he wept. It's a deeply moving situation. He loved Lazarus. In fact, the Bible tells us often he would go and stay with Lazarus and Mary and Martha when he was in the Jerusalem area. And now his friend has died. It's a deeply emotional time. I've told some of you before, I'm a crier. I admit it. I know I am. In fact, I can cry when I don't even know why I'm crying. If someone around me starts crying, I can start crying with them, even if I don't know why they're crying. It's just something that gets me. Well, Jesus was an emotional man, and there are men who say, well, I've never cried. Well, what's wrong with you? Jesus cried. It's okay to cry. It's an emotional situation. His friend has been put in this tomb, and it's a, uh, it's a cave. They had really cut out probably of a limestone cliff uh, uh, an indention where they could lay uh, the dead. And there was a stone rolled across it. And we know that uh, Jesus could have just snapped his finger and the uh, grave would have opened up. The stone would have rolled away, but he wanted them to be a part of seeing what was going to happen and so he told her, I want you to be a part of this. Remove the stone, verse 41. And they did. And then Jesus raised his eyes and he prays. And he speaks as if that which he's praying for has already been accomplished. Isn't that the way we should pray? Praying with such faith that when we pray for something, we can pray as if it's already happened. Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this, that they may believe you sent me. And then that powerful scene in verse 43, where Jesus shouts with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. After she had met the condition of Christ, he goes to the Lord in prayer and thanks God. So great was his faith that it was as good as done. He addresses the dead man. It's brief. It's direct. It is imperative. Come out of there. Now scholars for years have pointed out rightly so. Why did Jesus even use his name? One old preacher said, because if he hadn't used his name, every grave in the whole place would have opened up and everybody would have come alive. But he had a reason for Lazarus to come alive. He wanted the people see who he was. He wanted the people, as he had already said to the disciples, I want you to see the glory of God. But when they saw it that day, I'm telling you, they saw it that day. The creative power of our Lord Jesus is now at work. He had already been a part of bringing to life everything that ever was, and now he brings back a dead man from the grave. And so we see 
the destructive power of sin and death reversed in this supreme demonstration of Jesus. It was powerful. He comes forth. Now some people have said, well, why was he, why was he weeping if he knew what he was going to do? Again, Jesus was an emotional person. When others around him were weeping, he would weep. But one writer said he also wept because he knew he was going to have to bring Lazarus back to a world Lazarus didn't want to come back to. Don't you know Lazarus was already in heaven? And he brings him back, so he's weeping because I know what I'm bringing my friend back to. Some say he was weeping because of the disbelief of the people to whom he was ministering. But he wept. But he brought back him from the dead. And I simply ask you this day, has he done any less for you? Has he done any less for you? Every person I know that is a true follower of Christ has been brought back and resurrected from the dead. He's done the same thing for us, hasn't he? In fact, I love how he had already said it in our previous study in John chapter 5 when he said in verse 24, I tell you the truth. I think King James says, verily, verily. Look at verse 24. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and has not come, has not come under judgment, but has passed from where to where? Death to life. Resurrection occurs when you in faith Give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ and you're serious about it. You come from death to life. Has that happened to you, I ask you? Wherever you are, in your home, your car, at work, wherever you are, I ask you, have you come from death to life? Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great English preacher, he was so excited about it and so firm in his belief that he had been saved. He said this, now listen carefully. He's quoted as saying he was so sure of his salvation, he could, he could grab onto a corn stalk and swing over the fires of hell, look Satan straight in the eye and sing, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Now that's some assurance holding on to a corn stalk over the fires of hell. But my friends, it ought to be our testimony also. That we're assured that we know that we have risen from death to life. We ought to be able to say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Is that your testimony today? As we close, I want you to go back to two simple verses in this text. Back to verse 25 and 26. Because Jesus has a word for you even today. If you're not yet a follower of Christ and you're considering it, remember what he said in those verses, I am the resurrection. I am the life. When you give your life to Christ, it's not about you being good. It's about you seeing, I recognize the greatness and the goodness of Christ. And he's the only one that can take me from death to life. It's not about joining a church. It's not about being a part of a denomination. It's about giving your life to the one who said, I'm the resurrection. I am the life. The one who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Ever. And he ends up by saying, do you believe this? I pray that today you can say, I do believe it. I do believe it. I have hope because of what Christ has done in my life. 
What a powerful text this is. There was illness. There was death. There was resurrection. We all should be able to say, that's my testimony also. I was sick. I was lost. And then there was death. I know I was gone. I was out of it. But then Jesus came into my life. And there's resurrection. Is that your story? I pray it is. Would you pray with me right now? Father God, in Jesus' name I come. I thank you so much for your powerful word. I pray, Lord God, that you would speak to our hearts even now. Lord, I pray that you would do a work of resurrection just like you did in Lazarus' life. God, help us, Jesus. We need you. We need you. We need you now. Would you save the lost? Would you encourage the saved? For those that are discouraged living in this world we live in today, would you be a God of resurrection and life, even to them, to bring hope, even to those who have lost hope during these days? And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I would like for us to sing a hymn. We call it the Imitation Hymn. And Tim's going to lead us a precious song entitled The Solid Rock. During these next few moments, and I know we don't have an open invitation where you can walk down the aisle here today, but I want you to get serious with the Lord in your own private time and give your life to Him. Give your whole life to Him. Come back to the God of hope. Listen carefully to the song, and I pray you'd sing along and you would respond in your heart to the Lord right now. Please.